I'm David Pluff, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Yamiche Alcindor. I'm sure most of you already know Yamiche. She's the White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour and a contributor for both NBC News and MSNBC. I'm looking forward to hearing Yamiche's thoughts on, uh, you know, her views of the Biden administration so far, how she believes journalists should be covering the threats to democracy that we're continuing to see built across the country as hundreds of restrictive voting bills are put forward in state legislatures, and her views on the state of journalism, both as we move into the post-Trump era, but as we deal with increasing misinformation bouncing across the digital landscape. Before I get into it with Yamiche, we had a big week this week with President Biden signing the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. So I want to take a few minutes to reflect on that. I'm recording this Friday morning. I want to talk a little bit about the really important, hopeful, but realistic speech that President Biden delivered to the country uh, last night, Thursday night. It was, A, a fireside chat. It was not speechifying. It was a very casual conversation with a president with his citizens. I thought it was plain spoken. I thought it was grounded in reality. It's what people needed to hear. Somebody who's serious about the job, who's talking about data, didn't really talk about himself at all, just talked about the American people, but was also super realistic that while there's positive markers out there and we should point to them and we should be excited about them, there's risks to the trajectory. So I'm just happy every day that he's there, that people like Ron Klain and his team are focused on execution above all else. And, you know, I think we just all have to be smart in the coming days. The other thing I'll just mention is the politics of this. There's a lot of comparisons between the American Rescue Plan and the Recovery Act that President Obama and Vice President Biden passed and then implemented back in 2009 and 10. And of course, there's lessons from that. I would make one observation. Back in 2009 and 10, people were being told rightly that the recovery from a financial crisis economically takes a long time. So when you ask people in 09 and 10, is the economic direction of the country positive? Is your economic situation good? People resoundingly were saying no. So even though they were glad things were being done, you know, it took a long time before they felt better economically. I think what you see right now is people believe that it's going to get better more quickly than it did back then because of the nature of the economic shock. Economists are stating that every day. I think people are starting to see more job opportunities in their community, businesses reopening. I think the scale of the help in the American Rescue Plan is about double the Recovery Act as well. So I think pretty much everybody's going to have a direct interaction with the American Rescue Plan. And they're going to have their view on it. And I think it's going to be positive because it helped them. But also, we know the trajectory of the recovery here is going to be more quickly. So it's hard to tell people when they're saying, the direction of the country is wrong. I'm feeling bad about my economic situation, and I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon to say, hey, we passed a piece of legislation, so all is going to be good. doesn't work that way. But I think when people's mindset is, I'm starting to feel better, this is going to accelerate their ability, I think, to really make sure folks understand the American Rescue Plan helped accelerate this recovery, but also helped strengthen the economy and more generally reduce poverty. And mark my words, what you're going to see is Republicans in the Senate and the House almost unanimously are going to say, oh, listen, I supported so much that was in that plan. I mean, if it had been a little smaller, I would have voted for it. Or, you know, if there wasn't money to the blue states, I would have voted for it. But I mean, money for people, money for restaurants, reducing poverty, I'm for all that. And it's going to be both tragic and comical to see them say that. But the argument against them, which is that at one of America's greatest hours of need, you weren't there, 
is a pretty easy message to pound home. So I think the politics of this should work for the Democratic Party, as well as the substantive reality that this gives us the best shot to really strengthen the economy. But some of these elements around reducing childhood poverty are profound. Joe Biden is turning into someone who's not just going to make sure we're more focused on vaccine distribution and production, but someone who's actually doing some pretty historical things here in the first months of his presidency that we should all be excited about. Well, I could prattle on about this for hours, but I'm going to stop myself so we can get to our guest. I'm really excited to be talking to Yamish Alcindor, who I should mention also won the National Association of Black Journalists of the Year Award in November. A prestigious award to congratulations to Yamish on that. Yamish, welcome to Battleground. Thanks for having me. You know, I think there's been so much amazing journalism about what led up to January 6th that day. One thing I was fearful of is that the events of January 6th may fade, and it's clear some of our political leaders as well as journalists are going to continue to keep that front and center. But what's your thought about all the efforts that are happening out in the states right now to really change voter registration, how we vote, almost all kind of a unified effort by the Republican Party to almost choose their voters for future elections. What's your view about how important that story is and how to keep it fresh? Because, you know, the insurrection had visuals. It captivated the world, really. And this is different. This is a quieter assault on our democratic norms. I think efforts by Republicans to change the way that people vote in this country is probably one of the most important stories of this next phase of politics. Mm -hmm. I think we have to, as journalists, continue to really look at these bills and say, is it really the Republican Party wanting to make sure that the system is functioning fairly? Are there things that maybe happened in 2020 that need to be fixed? Or is this just another assault on democracy and Republicans targeting African-American voters, voters of color, and others to make sure that it's harder for them to vote. It's only been 56 years since John Lewis, the late civil rights icon, was almost beat and killed and was, was beaten and almost killed in Selma, Alabama, just trying to push for voting rights. And we know that the Republican Party, based on the judgment, one judge in North Carolina, that they have a tendency, at least in a history of targeting African-Americans in particular and saying, okay, if we can't win their vote, we're going to make it harder for them to vote. That is something that has objectively happened over and over again. And I think what's something that we have to, as a country, ask ourselves whether or not we're comfortable with that. And I think how we keep it fresh is just reminding people how we got here. People in this country were not just allowed to vote in some sort of polite way with people asking. <laughs> it took people dying. It took people like Medgar Evers and Martin Luther King and so many others whose names we don't know paying for the price to vote with blood and with their lives. And I think that that is the continuous visual that we have to remind people that this was something that was a violent, violent debate that we had in this country about who could get access to the ballot box. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. So I'm glad that you're taking that approach and others will be as well. These voter suppression efforts that are happening around the country are all fueled by disinformation, the big lie. That was a state-sponsored piece of disinformation, that there's fraud in our elections when there's not, the election was stolen when it wasn't. We will eventually recover from the pandemic, maybe sooner than we thought even a couple of months ago. Our economy will recover. A lot of pain along the way. But if we don't figure out a way to have a common set of facts 
I'm not sure this experiment continues in this country, uh, not to be too dark about it. So what are your views on this? I think that we really do need to keep asking those questions. What does it mean that we can't decide what truth is? And what does it mean that we want to have a democracy, but there are people who fundamentally don't believe even today that President Biden, who was elected fairly through an election that was conducted much like other elections before it, of course, with with the advent of a lot of mail-in voting, but was still certified by all 50 states, was still something that state election officials, Republicans and Democrats, said that the process was fair, that we still have a society that is questioning openly whether or not President Biden is the legitimate leader of this country. I think it's a big question. I think it is at the heart of our democracy, whether or not it really survives. Look no further than other immigrants and other countries to see what happens to democracies if they get to a point where a segment of their population doesn't believe fundamentally in the truth and in the idea that facts matter. I did a story for PBS NewsHour interviewing immigrants who were really, really scared after former President Trump would not would not what's a what's a word oh i'm the c this it starts with a c um would not concede oh right i did a story <laughs> right as we're like what's what could the c word that be? was a c um, word for him <laughs> the word that should right. never be uttered yes right <laughs> so I, I did a story for pbs news hour talking to immigrants who were terrified after former president trump refused to concede and They said, this is how democracies end. Democracies end when one side of a political faction decides they don't want to believe in the results of an election and they want to start saying, the only people we can trust is this one person, this one personality. And I remember one man who immigrated from Haiti said, you know, President Trump, he has all these people who believe him and they could get violent. They could become armed and they could really do some damage. And now, of course, it was like a premonition. As a Haitian immigrant, he had lived through a society where people took up arms and are still taking up arms because they believe one side of the political spectrum is in power, even if that's not actually the truth. So I think we have to be very, very wary of what's going on, and we have to really cover it and continue to talk about what's going on in our society. Yeah. So watching what's happening with the inf- misinformation that's being fed to a you know large percentage of our population, whether it's Fox or Sinclair at the local level, under the guise of journalism. But it's all, I think, a very cynical, profit-driven approach, which is this is the best way to keep this audience, to create this alternative reality for them. It must sometimes feel like you're kind of chugging uphill a little bit when you're doing traditional fact-based, non-partial, non-partisan journalism. I think that's true that we're in this age where it's tough because people are choosing in some ways what they think they want to see. So if someone maybe is going to one network, they think, okay, well, I'm going to get news that makes me feel like these people agree with my point of view. Or if I'm going to another network, this anchor in particular already shares my worldview. I think that all we could do as journalists, or at least journalists like me can do, is just continue to report the news. So no matter what network I'm on, if I'm on PBS or I'm on MSNBC or I'm on NBC, I'm in some ways, just thinking about bringing people the facts. And I think that that's going to continue to be the way that we have to do this. I think I can't control, especially as a journalist, what perceptions people have about my journalism. But I think I can at least remember and stick to the idea that it's based in truth and based in fact. Right. We're going to take a short break. More with Yamish Alcindor when Battleground returns. Welcome back, everyone, to Battleground. 
So let's talk about President Biden's speech. There was hopeful elements. I think most of us in the country probably jumped for joy when we heard there'll be enough vaccines for everybody over 18 by May 1. Doesn't mean we'll all get them, but there'll be enough out there. Mm -hmm. That July 4th could be an important day in this country where we're all gathering with close friends and family. I think that leads people to think, you know, kids will all be back in school five days a week in September physically. Maybe the holidays are normal. But also there were some cautionary notes in there, you know, making clear that there's a bunch of stuff that could derail us, everything from the variants accelerating to the decisions made at a state level to open up prematurely. What was your take on the speech? I think in some ways what we're hearing is a president and an administration saying things are tough and that I want to be straight with you and I want to tell you what the way forward is. And there's a lot of unknowns. And I think in the middle of this pandemic, especially, we're in this situation where people want concrete answers, right? Right. They want to say, I can go hang out with my grandma in another state, in another country on this date. That just isn't the case. And I think the previous administration and President Trump, we had someone who was really trying to look like he was in control, who could say, I know that the schools are going to be able to open. Let's just get things back to normal. Where you have in President Biden, someone, even when he was giving people dates to circle on their calendar, he was also saying things could change and I want to level with you. And right. I think that that is something that I think people maybe find frustrating, but I think it's also the reality of the situation when I talk to scientists and to experts and I say, well, when are we really going to be able to do this? When am I going to be able to fly to to Haiti to see my dad? They say, we're not really sure. And that's not really a popular thing to do, but I think it's the only way to really be truthful about the situation we're in. It's interesting. You think about, okay, so Biden's now put out May 1st. So that's a natural point where we'll say how many people over 18 actually have gotten a vaccine. You've got July 4th. Is that realized? You've obviously got the American Rescue Plan now. So the execution of that, do we begin to see jobless numbers drop? Do we begin to see the unemployment rate drop? Do you think that's going to be the major soundtrack from a journalism standpoint, let's say, over the next 90 days? I think there are a lot of stories that are going to happen Obviously, the pandemic is one of them. I think immigration is going to be a huge topic, especially because we're seeing the numbers just spike and spike and spike. I also think there really is this conversation we're going to have about vaccines and who's deciding to get them. Once they all become available to all Americans, it's sounding like that's going to be at least by the end of May for all American adults. We're going to have to get into this question about who's getting access So that's what does equity look like? Is Harlem and the Bronx going to have the same access as Manhattan? Are we going to see something where the same inequalities that we see play out in in education, in policing, and all sorts of other areas, is that also going to play out in the healthcare system? We already see evidence of that. But once we have the supply issue met where everyone who wants a vaccine could get one in theory, we're going to then have to, I think, have a real conversation about, well, what does it mean if half of our society doesn't have a CBS? Or maybe it's pockets of our society don't have a CVS and walking distance. Are we going to invest in getting people access to going to these places to make sure or getting mobile vans to go into all of the areas? How much is that going to cost? I think the vaccine hesitancy among rural voters, among conservative voters is a big storyline that I think we have not really looked at in the same way as we have hesitancy among Black people. Mm-hmm. I also think policing is going to be a huge issue. The city of Minneapolis just settled for millions and millions of dollars with the family of George Floyd. As someone who has covered police interactions, fatal police encounters with Americans, black and white in this country and all different other races in between, I think police officers, unfortunately, are going to continue to shoot people or kill people in ways that some citizens are going to find to be troubling. So I think that that story doesn't go away anytime soon. No rest for the worry from a journalistic standpoint. No, I think you're you're right. It's going to be fascinating to watch 
both the data and then how journalists interpret it as we get into May. And let's hope that what President Biden said last night is true. And I can't imagine he would say it if it wasn't. There will be enough vaccines in May for everybody over 18. But if we're like 65% in a state, some of that may be failures of execution. Some of it, as you said, may be the inequality of access. Some of it's vaccine hesitancy. And so I think there will be a lot of focus on why that is. You know, you mentioned the police protest. So on the one hand, you've seen a lot of citizens, I think some people for the first time, getting their eyes awoken and getting involved in efforts at racial justice, helping bring about change at the local level and even at the national level. That's been the positive, right? But on the other side, there's been a reaction to that where I think, of course, there's always been white supremacy, but it seems like it's a little more out in the open now. And I'm just curious about whether you agree with that and how that dynamic is going to play out, because I think you are going to see candidates being much more comfortable embracing elements of that than we've seen in this country for decades. I think that in some ways, the story of America has always been a story where there's a segment of the population that's trying to push for civil rights, trying to push for people to be treated equally. And then there's a segment of the population that responds often with violence to that push and that effort to treat more people equally. I think you can look no farther than the Reconstruction era Mm -hmm. of this country to remember that we had our first Black senators and then we had the emergence of the KKK. I think... Civil rights in this country has always been a push and pull, and that's the way that America has worked. And I'm not surprised at all that in the same breath that we had our first African-American president, we had real intensifying of something called the Tea Party. I'm not surprised that in the middle of us having the first Black woman serve as the vice president and having a real robust conversation about civil rights and Black Lives Matter after the death of George Floyd, that we also have people who say there is politically beneficial for them to be against that, and that there is a segment of this population that is looking at this and saying, we are changing too much, that the country is doing too much for a segment of the population, and that they are somehow being left out of the American dream, that we somehow are giving special treatment to African Americans or to Asian Americans in a way that they don't think is beneficial for the country. So no, I'm not surprised by the idea that, especially after President Trump, he was a president who really, really focused his energy on playing up culture wars. Mm -hmm. He was a president who really saw it to be politically beneficial to use, at times, racist language. And let's remember that this was a Republican Party that spent a lot of money in 2012 to try to bring in more African-Americans and more Latinos. And then President Trump comes, blows that all up, runs the kind of campaign that every single Republican strategist would have said would not win, wins the party nomination, wins the presidency. Of course, there are going to be people who look at President Trump and say, I think I can replicate that and have some real success there. Yeah, no, he definitely created a permission structure for all this to be more embraced openly. You mentioned African-American voters, Latino voters. There's been some really good journalism and analysis so far about the 2020 election. We did see Trump improving his margins in some areas of the country with Hispanic voters, in some cases quite considerably in in South and West Texas, Miami-Dade County, doing slightly better with African-American voters. How important is that trend? Are we going to see potentially more black and Hispanic non-college voters, particularly men, sort of align with white non-college men voters? 2020 was such a, a tense situation <laughs> because I, yeah. I just think that I'm not quite sure whether we will see another election where a couple of things were happening, right? We had the country focused on a racial reckoning in a way that was, I think, 
so tied to watching a Black man die for eight minutes and 46 seconds that people were really feeling raw about that. You had people who were living in their homes, not able to leave, and who I think then were doing a lot of reflecting on what their lives were and, and what they really wanted to see in their government. And then, of course, you had a president, President Trump, who was willing to be politically savage in a way that had helped him for a lot of different ways in his life, right? Yeah. I still remember Maggie Haberman and I did an event together, and I remember Maggie Haberman bringing this up, and I almost forgotten about it, that he had brought in Bill Clinton's accusers to a debate with Hillary Clinton, right? <laughs> he was used to this ground warfare type of politics that came from Roy Cohen and all sorts of people, Roger Stone. Yeah. So I just don't know if there's someone who's going to be as Trumpy as Trump. Of course, we've seen people like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio try to be Trumpy, but I just don't know if we're going to ever see that again. So I think the issues that were at play in 2020, I think were so unique. I think we will, of course, still see race as an issue. We will still see truth decay, as former President Obama would call it, this idea of misinformation and disinformation still being an issue. But I just wonder if we're going to have another election cycle where someone is saying, even before any votes have been counted, if I lose, the only way I could lose is the election was rigged, right? That was the kind of foundation that President Trump was laying that I think made this election so much different than others. Do you expect, Yamish, that it's 2022? We don't know what's going to happen. Maybe one party does considerably better than the other. Maybe it's a close election. But do you expect Republicans who might lose close congressional races or gubernatorial races to pull the Trump card and say, I didn't lose, and maybe there's something the state legislature can do? Or do you think that was unique to him? I think that's a really important question for our country and our democracy. I feel like it's the question of this decade, of this century. And who knows the answer to that question? I certainly don't. <laughs> right. I think we have to watch and see whether or not we get to a point, not just where people say, oh, you know, that was rigged and the system's against me. Bernie Sanders said that. He said the system's rigged and I'm not being treated fairly. But are we going to get to a point where someone says we need to overturn the election? I'm going to send my supporters to the Capitol and have them march on the Missouri state Capitol or the New Mexico state Capitol and to stop the counting of votes and the electoral process. That's another level. It's not just complaining, oh, you know, my voters didn't get to stand in line as long as yours. That's saying this entire system needs to not just be stopped, but it needs to be physically stopped. It needs to be halted in the middle of it happening. That's such a big step to take that I just don't know if we're going to see that. Right. No, I think that is such a central question, because if we see that at 22, you got to think that could be part of the 24 playbook. Battleground will be right back after a short break. 
as you think about covering big stories at a state level or national events that are important locally, how important it is for national outlets to help fill that gap that's happening right now where you just don't have the local coverage that you used to have? I think it's a great question to ask what can national outlets do to fill the void of local papers, local media organizations who we've seen fold in really record numbers and lose resources. But as someone who on the local level worked for the Miami Herald, the Seattle Times, Mm -hmm. Newsday in Long Island, New York, I just don't know if we can actually do it. Because I think the kind of stories, the kind of work that has to go into breaking a story on a local level to really getting to know lawmakers, getting to know clerks, getting to know aides, to then get to the big stories that say, oh, this commissioner is actually lining the pockets or this person is trying to sell the seat of the Senate seat of Barack Obama. Those type of stories, (laughs) right? right? Those stories that have literally happened. They take work. They take getting people to trust you. And I think the national media parachuting in to cities isn't the same thing. I think that means that we have to have bureaus in different places. Right. I I worked at the New York Times. They're doing a good job of sending people to San Antonio, to Dallas, to, to other places. But that's still one person, right, trying to do the work of what used to be a big, robust news organization that had a bunch of people working on the ground. So I just think... That it's really, really tough. And I think it's a good question to pose. I just don't know if there's a good answer for it other than saying, how do we really support local journalism and make sure that we have these local outlets still around and still functioning? Right. No, it's definitely not at all a complete remedy. It's interesting. The Times and the Washington Post are starting to actually open up more bureaus after a trend of closing them, which is part of it. You mentioned your stints in Seattle, Miami, Newsday in New York. What is your biggest fear about what's missing when you have newspapers and other journalist entities either close up or really get restricted? Is it corruption doesn't get covered? Is it putting local flavor on healthcare stories, economic stories? I'm just curious. It's all those things I know. But what do you think we're going to miss the most? What's the greatest danger when there's less journalist accountability happening I think my biggest fears are probably come down to two things. The first is accountability. Mm -hmm. I think if you have local politicians, local council members, locally elected officials who don't feel like they are being watched and scrutinized and questioned in a way that really calls them to account and holds them accountable, people just start to do things that they think they can get away with. Yeah, It doesn't mean that I'm saying... Politicians are inherently bad people, but I think there is this sense that power can corrupt and that you have a media there to check that corruption. So I really worry about that on a local, local level. The other thing that I think I worry about is who is covering the lives of people in those communities when they're struggling. Mm -hmm. My husband worked in Cleveland for a long time, so I watch a lot of local Cleveland news still because a lot of his friends are still working in that market. And one of his friends just really did kind of did a deep dive on this landlord that wasn't able to or wasn't wasn't willing to fix a woman's furnace in the middle of winter following him around kind of doing the old school reporting where you put the camera in the face and say what's going on why isn't this fixed and her reporting meant that this woman's house could get fixed and that she could sleep warmly 
that is not an insignificant thing, right? That person might not ever be on the front page of the New York Times, but who is going to step in when people need help, right? When people are getting taken advantage of, if it's not local reporters who are saying, I'm going to pay attention to you, even if you're not the topic that's going to be the thing that's leading the national news, especially, I would say, people of color in particular, we know are they live disadvantaged lives in neighborhoods that are often don't have access to the same amount of wealth and opportunities. So I think it really also hurts them to not have a local media that is focused on their lives. Yeah. Those are such great examples. You know, your point about corruption, I a long time ago ran a U.S. Senate race in New Jersey. And of course, you had the Star-Ledger, the Asbury Park Press, some great newspapers. But Jersey doesn't have his own TV station, and the TV stations in New York and Philly don't pay too much attention to Jersey politicians. I think one of the reasons you've had so much corruption is you don't have that threat. And I think you make such a great point also about this human interest story, and local journalists get results for people. In many cases, the only people that do. You mean you've been generous with your time. Last question for you. Having worked at Newsday, you by definition had to become a student of Andrew Cuomo. And I'm just curious, as you watch this playing out in New York. You have now, I think today, AOC and other members of Congress came out calling for him to resign. You have most of the New York state legislature, Democrats calling for him to resign. Polls, not there yet. Most people saying he shouldn't resign. Cuomo today restated he's not going to resign. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. What's your view of how this may play out, just given all you know about New York politics and, and him specifically? Another great question. <laughs> another another <laughs> hard thing to do because Andrew Cuomo, as we know, um, is saying he's not resigning. And we've seen governors, I'm thinking of Ralph Northam in Virginia, mm-hmm. when a lot of national Democrats were telling him to resign, he kind of stuck it out. And people thought he was done. And he went on to hang on and to then lead pandemic news conferences where he didn't have to talk about wearing blackface. And he was able to at least weather that storm. It was still kind of a cloud that hangs over him in some ways, but he was able to weather it. Andrew Cuomo, of course, is dealing with a much different beast in that there are there's kind of this drip, drip, drip of right. of news that's coming out that's continuing to come out. And it's people who can say in front of cameras to news reporters, here's how he physically hurt me and make those allegations against him. So I think we're really in Andrew Cuomo watch <laughs> because to me, it just seems like the situation is going to get harder and harder for him to hang on. But let's remember, it's Andrew Cuomo who... It's Andrew <laughs> right? Cuomo. Like, yeah. the reason why he became popular <laughs> was because of his gruff, I take no crap from anyone personality. And that is also the same personality that people said create a toxic work environment. It's also the same personality that we see on display now as he's refusing to resign. Yeah, it's like he's the immovable object and everybody calling for him to resign is an unstoppable force. And these two things are colliding. All we know is he will have a constitution to stay longer than most human beings would. So it'll just be interesting to see uh, when those paths cross. Well, listen, Yamish, thank you for your time today. Most importantly, thank you for all you've done through your career to inform us and, and inspire us and educate us and always look forward to your reporting and your takes on these really historical times we're living through. So once again, thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Yamish. Thanks so much to Yamish Alcindor. I really enjoyed that conversation for joining us on this episode of Battleground. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams did research for this episode. And Christian Castro-Wassell is our executive producer.